Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. I'm joined today by David Wish, the CEO and founder of Little Kids Rock. David, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Brian. So tell me, what is Little Kids Rock? Little Kids Rock is a nonprofit organization that transforms people's lives by restoring expanding and innovating music education in some of our country's most under-resourced public schools. Now, you're based here in Verona, New Jersey. Yes. But you're a national program. Uh, If I'm correct, you're in 37 states. Tell me about the reach of the organization. Sure. So we're in about 2,500 schools in over 300 school districts across the country. And we work with children ages kindergarten all the way through high school. And we also have a program where we're working with college students, students who are going to become the next generation of music teachers. So the name <laughs> Little Kids Rock can be a little misleading. Uh, in fact, we're looking at changing our name soon. We've been around for 16 years. They're in our 16th year right now. So we're in our mid-adolescence here. And the way the program works is is really pretty simple. We go into school districts that have either – had their music programs eliminated or are struggling to bring more children into music making. And we provide them with uh, a suite of services. First, we uh, I should say the most important thing is we train teachers to run what we call student-centered music programs, programs that teach children to play the music that they know and love, leveraging their cultural capital. So rather than coming in and saying, hey, we're going to – I think today I'll teach you Row, Row, Row Your Boat or I'm going to teach you Hot Cross Buns or you're going to give you a, you know, a, a recorder or wood blocks. It's more getting a beat on who your students are. What are they listening to? What do they – oh, you like Taylor Swift? Oh, OK. Well – Instead of hot cross buns, we're going to do shake it off or instead of um, playing on the recorder, we'll play on a drum set. So we train teachers to run these student-centered music programs that leverage the cultural capital of the kids we serve. And then we also give them a full complement of instruments that they can use with their students at their school. So on an average year right now, we're giving away uh, you know, 15, 20,000 instruments per year. Uh, And we also provide teachers with weekly curricular updates so that they've got a consistent and steady source of resources to continue innovating in the music education space. And then the final thing that we do is we sort of network all of our teachers together and they become sort of like a community of of teacher learners, you know, getting excited and energized by one another, um, learning from one another. So you might see, you know, we have a private uh, social network site for all of our teachers. So you might 
might see, you know, in Atlanta one morning, a teacher post, hey, this is this version of uh, this Portugal and the Man song that I just did with my kids. And then that afternoon, boom, you see someone in Pasadena, California has picked it up. Uh, and then next thing you know, tomorrow, there's three teachers in, in the D.C. area that have posted and said, hey, thanks. Look, I added a horn section instead of this or, I, you know, add, here's some lead guitar for it. So it, it, it's really been exciting to watch the organization grow over the last 16 years, really from what was it, a very grassroots beginning uh, to what's grown to be really the largest instrumental and vocal music program in the U.S. public school system today. Wow. Uh, I, that's a lot. I mean, <laughs> you guys are doing a lot, and it's very powerful. I mean, that social networking piece is huge, and I've seen that exist in other non-music educational settings, too, with the uh, knowledge-based sharing mm -hmm. and such. Your company's roughly the same age as ours here, uh, ACM and East Main Media, Roughly, we're in our 17th year, so it's roughly the same. My earliest recollections of meeting you was at the NAM show, the North American Music Manufacturers show, if I'm correct. And I would recognize you because you would wear a very large hat, like a colored <laughs> top hat, right? Yeah, Green like or a mad blue, hat or hat. Like a mad hat or hat. And I can, I can very <laughs> clearly remember looking down the hall at the Anaheim Convention Center and seeing a sea of people, but seeing you in your hat stand out above that crowd. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about how did that work for you and that visual branding of yourself at that very important convention? Because you made a lot of relationships in that circle. Um, you know, my company was doing DVD development for companies like Music Sales and Hudson Music and Hal Leonard. Tell me about how that choice of branding helped you? So for me, it came easily as a former first grade school teacher. I mean, and I guess um, what I should say is that uh, I'll get to that question directly, <laughs> but I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. I started my teaching career in the murder capital of the United States way back in 1992 um, as a first grade school teacher mm. and at a school that had no music program. Which was where? Well, that was in East Palo Alto, California. Oh, West Coast, okay. Yep, West Coast. And, you know, over time, as I got my bearings down as a new teacher, it just started to bother me that there was no music for my kids. So I started a, a, initially just a free guitar class for my kids as a volunteer effort. And it was immediately transformational for the kids and also for myself. And in a community like that, you know, what you really want to do is increase the peace, bring more harmony, bring more happiness, keep kids in school, keep them happy to be there. And I found that music was this sort of magical, uh, <laughs> magical force for doing that. And also, you know, again, first grade. So recognize who my audience was and also what my disposition is sort of, you know, I, I'm not a person who's uh, averse to hamming it up a little bit, right, <laughs> to get a point across and having a good time. Uh, in a way that is intended to get a, you know, a powerful message across simply. So anyways, but the story of Little Kids Rock basically was, so I was teaching my first graders how to play guitar and then the second graders wanted in. 
So I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll start a class for the second graders. And then the third graders wanted in. And my kids started writing their own music because, again, a big part of the program was like, hey, I'll show you how to play the music you know and love. But once you know how to play a couple of chords, you're perfectly capable of writing your own tunes. So I initially fed this habit I was developing of bringing music for free to the kids at my school by selling CDs of the original music that my kids were writing. Um, and so I wound up teaching classes every day before school, every day after school, even during my lunch hour, all while teaching first grade. And that's eventually what led me to thinking like there's something special going on here that's much bigger than just my school or just me as a teacher. There's something to be done for the community writ large. And I, I ultimately came to the decision that, I mean, I originally started training other teachers out of guilt because I couldn't take any more right. kids. And then I realized, well, wow, I actually like training these teachers to do what I'm doing as much as I like working with the kids. But there's a lever there. There's a way to scale there. There's, there's much greater impact there. And so in 2002, I left teaching to found Little Kids Rock. And uh, one of the earliest places I went looking for funding was NAM, which is, a, you know, sure. which is where we met. And it's, of course, for, for some of your listeners who may not know, it's a trade show where musical products companies like Gibson and uh, Ludwig and Yamaha come to, to, to sell their wares. And I heard that they had a foundation. And I thought, well, <laughs> seems like a good fit. And they became one of our earliest funders. I wrote a grant proposal and they gave us, I think it was $35,000, which was about half of my operating budget our first year. And when I went to the NAM show, oh, they invited me to come. I had no idea what to expect. But, you know, uh, I, I had never been to any trade show. So to suddenly be met with 100,000 people yeah. with booths. Big show. Oh, yeah. yeah. Big show, big marketing expenses. You know, this booth has a smoke machine and this one has, you know, lasers and this one has this yeah. famous musician. And here I am like with little pamphlets to hand out about this nonprofit I'm just starting. So uh, I truthfully got the idea for the crazy hat. Um, by I just saw someone else wearing a crazy hat. I don't know. I remember a clown came by. You know, of course, as only at the NAMM show this could happen. And he made exactly. me he made me a balloon hat. And what I noticed was, but and I was like, I was game. It was like kind of a slow. It was slow at my little table. No one was stopping because there were so many other exciting things. But the fact that I had a balloon hat on, people started saying, "Hey, nice hat." And I said, "Hey, I bet you'd like this organization." It was the icebreaker I knew. And so the next year, I was like, "No, no, no, no. I'm not going to wait for a clown to build me a balloon hat. I will be my own clown with my own outrageous hat." And every year, I started buying outrageous hats. And and like you said, it really. Uh, it was the best marketing money I've ever spent. It was 15 or 20 bucks a year. But, you know, uh, I, it was through that kind of uh, guerrilla marketing and just walking up and down and talking. We, I got to become good friends with Fred Gretsch. I got to, you know, meet some of the wonderful people at Fender and Epiphone and Casio and many of the other companies that we've um, done work with over the years and have supported our kids. Um and so early on, uh, it was uh, probably the biggest thing going for us. You know, I'll, like that first year, half of our budget really came from NAM or supporters from NAM. Um, you know, this last year, our budget was about $7 million. Um, and the musical products industry is a much smaller part of our support base now. Now our support comes much more from individuals from around the country, 
companies outside of musical products, you know, uh, like Niagara is a big supporter of ours. They're a water company. We also do uh, another huge supporter of ours is Hot Topic, you know, the clothing store. They do music stuff. Sure. Um, but that hat, <laughs> a lot of great mileage out of that hat. Sure. It worked. Absolutely. I mean, I can, again, I can close my eyes and <laughs> picture you at the convention center. Boom. It worked. You say in the opening line of your bio, we are all innately musical. And I want to connect that statement with what you experienced with those first graders and the second graders creating their own music. Can you touch on that for me and tell me what you mean by innate, we are all innately musical? So there are certain things that just differentiate us from our <laughs> animal and plant brethren here on planet Earth. Speech, at least at the level that we are capable of, it comes quickly to mind. And close on the heels comes music. Sure, there are other animals that may have a few rudimentary forms of communicating. And sure, there are animals that make beautiful music like songbirds, but no one does it the way we do. Let's be serious. And I actually think those happen to be two sides of the exact same coin. I think of music as being either an extension of our linguistic ability or the opposite may be true. And there's a lot of science that's investigating this right now. I'm not a linguist, I'm not a neurologist, but I'm familiar with the literature and it's fascinating. So I won't bore you with some of the studies, but I will talk concretely as you've asked about my actual classroom. So I was a bilingual school teacher. Most of my kids were Spanish speakers and I was teaching in Spanish trying to teach the kids how to read in Spanish because they were first graders and they needed to learn to read so that they would then, while learning to speak English, so that they could transition into reading and you know mainstream English education the following year. And so my background and my training was really in second language learning. And when I started teaching music to the kids, I started noticing that the things that made me a successful second language teacher and the things that made me a successful music teacher were interchangeable, virtually identical. And to be honest, Brian, I didn't give it a lot of thought at the time because I was like, whatever, I'm feeling my way. I'm teaching music the way that sort of feels natural to me. But once I started training other teachers, I really had to do that. So let me give you some concrete mm -hmm. examples. I like to say, you know, we're all innately musical, so draw the music out, don't drum it in. What does that mean? If you bring your average six-year-old kid in here and let's say I wanted to teach them about 16th notes, well, I could take two approaches. I could say they don't know anything about 16th notes or music, but thank goodness for them, I'm here and I will show them that. So I'll notate it on the board and I'll explain it. Or I could say, no, you're six. You already know what a 16th note is. You don't know that you know that, right? right? You know, so if I go, you know, one, two, you know, and ask a child to clap back, well, they're going to do it probably on their first or second try. Sure. Or if I go, you know, if I want to teach about syncopation, you know. Oh, boy. Bop, 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 a whole room full of kids, and they'll, they'll nail it on the first or second try. But if I have to write that in notation and I have to make that the gateway, 
it's not the way you teach a language. You don't start teaching a language saying, today we're going to learn about direct object pronouns, or if and when you do, and some of us have sat through some of those language <laughs> yeah, classes, yeah, right. it doesn't really take the way just talking with another human being. You, know, you hear people, oh, well, I lived in Spain for six months. Oh, and that's when I learned to speak Spanish. Right. So um, I don't think that it's very hard to prove that all humans are musical. And in fact, it's something I delight in. I can't tell you how many adults I meet, highly competent, massively accomplished adults who are profoundly insecure about their own musical ability right, right. Um, and, and convinced that they're not musical. And my one of my great delights is proving that they're wrong. <laughs> you know, I can't sing. Well, that doesn't mean you're not musical. And right. also, I don't even know it doesn't mean you can't sing, but okay. You know, here, have you ever considered playing the drums? No, I can't keep a beat at all. But really what you find very quickly is we're hardwired for this, just the way we are for speech. I can raise a very cute goat uh, and talk to it all day long. It will never produce speech. Right. Won't happen because it's not hardwired. We are hardwired for speech just as we are hardwired for music. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Here's an important question I think you are in a very good position to answer. Why is music education important? Hmm. I love that question because I like to rephrase it. I say, why is education important? Well, education is important because it's the contract between this generation and the next generation. It's the bridge between the past and the future. And if you believe in a liberal arts education, which I do, and I think that history shows in cultures that are very diverse around the world, that when you expose people to a fairly narrow range of topics, science, the arts, music, social studies, literature, mathematics. I mean, these are subjects you can count on a hand or two. What do you do? Well, you just simply produce some of the greatest cultures and civilizations uh, that the world has ever known. And um, it's a corpus. It's a body. So it's sort of like saying when people say, why do you think music education is important? I, you know, it's sort of like, well, why is pancreas health important as opposed to why is health important? Well, you know, you can try being really healthy and not have a healthy pancreas, but that'll kill you eventually. And uh, the analogy may not be quite so dire, but each of these subjects we don't introduce them because it's a trade. We don't we don't teach math to someone because we want them to grow up and become a mathematician, but rather we want them to have math for meaning in their lives. Well, music is no different. I don't care whether a student grows up to become a musician or in the music industry or not. I care quite a lot. Will you have music in your life for meaning and purpose? And if not, as a music teacher, I've kind of failed. And if so, I've succeeded. And if it's your avocation or your career, well, so much the better. But 
each of those subjects has something unique that none of the others can offer. History. Well, what does history have? Well, it gives you insights into how you got to where you are or where you're going that other things have a hard time doing. Science, rational thought. Well, oh, wow, you know, and math. And what is it that music brings? And here I'll wax a little, uh, a little wacky and say it's like I don't really know what it is other than to say it's the closest thing to magic that I've experienced in my own life. You know, and that's why the poets grapple with it and say, you know, music takes flight where speech leaves off or expresses that which can't be expressed. Or why is it that we pair music with virtually everything, funerals, weddings, shopping malls, parties, uh, music makes everything you put it with better. Who came up with the idea that removing it from education would somehow make education better? I think it weakens it. Let's drill into that. My perspective of asking you the question of why music education is important is couched in what I think is a pretty clear reality that in many, at least public school districts, when there's a budget crunch, the first thing that goes, we've seen this, is arts and music education. But I will also throw the question back to you because those challenges have existed that has created the opportunity and really the need for organizations like Little Kids Rock. Can you connect that for me? Again, you're uniquely equipped to speak to this Mm. because you are boots on the ground and you are also partnering with people who understand this need. Mm. You know, can you speak to that for me? Sure. I mean, I think that the budget crunches that schools face are real and decisions have to be made. I think that the notion that music programs are the first to be cut, I think that the root cause of that is at least twofold. First is there are people who perceive it as an extra or something that's loose or it's fun, so it must be frivolous. That's very unfortunate and I think uh, super short-sighted. I don't think that's the majority of instances. I think that another reason that it happens is that and I've been in schools where these very difficult budget conversations are happening. You know, there's a budget crunch. You're looking for where to save and you look at your librarian and your librarian's providing services to every single child at your school. You're looking at your reading recovery teacher and they're doing the same. You look at the music teacher and maybe they're doing a marching band with 60 kids and you have a school of, you know, a high school of 850 children and there's 60 kids in the marching band and and 100 kids in the choir. And you think to yourself, hmm, maybe we could do without that. We don't want to. It's not that we don't see the value of it, but they're just not reaching as many kids as these other um, programs are. And of course, there's research that shows that, you know, that one of the things that music educators, especially at the collegiate level, talk a lot about is that in schools that do have music programs, often 80 percent or more of the students in the district do not take music, especially when it becomes elective, when it's not mandatory. And that generally happens in middle and high school. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. And you could say, well, they have busy schedules. But for me, I think that's a little bit of a cop out. I think one of the main reasons is that music education 
generation for many children lacks relevancy, cultural relevancy. Think about teenagers. They all virtually define themselves by the kind of music that they listen to. It's so important to them. In fact, they're listening to more music than they ever will again in their lives. And yet, at that same moment, they leave music education. Why? What if there was an option that reflected their tastes? You like hip-hop? We do hip-hop. You like rock? We do rock. You like pop? We'll do pop. And that's what we're finding in our program is that we're bringing kids into music education that would not join a traditional existing program. So I think the question is there's no one simple answer as to why the programs are cut. There's no one simple answer to how to solve it. But I do think that one clear contributor to bringing more children into music is to make it culturally relevant for them. Music is a cultural artifact more than anything. You can study music in a vacuum, but I mean, like, let's say that you were to study um, Surfing USA. What does that song mean? I don't know. It's about a person who likes to surf. Okay, yeah, it is. It's about a lot of things. It's about the end of World War II. It's about a leisure class of teenagers. It's about the baby boomers. It's about the wake of Elvis Presley and the door opening to the next generation. I mean, it's like, it's so evocative. It's not just, oh yeah, it's three chords and the riff in the beginning is do dee 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 do dee 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 everybody. It's so much more than that. And so- And it's something different to everybody. Yes. It's about being cool to one person. It's about surfing to another. It's all interpretive. Yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. And there's also no right or wrong music to like. You know, Bob Marley said it well. You know, one thing about music, when it hits you, you feel no pain. <laughs> and you just don't know how it's going to hit you, when it's going to hit you, or what music is going to hit you. And to me, I think it's such a wonderful opportunity start with the learner. What do you like? Oh, you like that? Great. We're doing that then. And I think that that approach to really starting with the students and letting them pick the repertoire is one of the things that's differentiated Little Kids Rock from day one, really. And it's something that I'm really excited to see a lot of people are beginning to imitate. A lot of colleges and universities are now taking our teacher trainings and embedding it in their college courses for the next generation of music teachers because they want to make sure that the kids that they're graduating, they'll be the music teachers of tomorrow, will be able to serve the diverse children that they're going to be meeting in the classroom. You know, Now, this is not to say, let's get rid of Ellington and Beethoven and, and John Philip Sousa. All of that, yes, but more, please more. Music did not stop at the end of the jazz era, you know, and it's never going to stop. The world of music doesn't stand still. In fact, it moves really quickly. Yeah. And so too should the world of music education. Music education should move at the speed of music as far as I'm concerned. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast with David Wish, CEO and founder of Little Kids Rock. Join us next week for part two of the conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, 
Audio engineer, J.P. Kong. Senior producer, Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.